Section 51 of Jean Christophe, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Jean Christophe, Volume 1, by Romain Roland, translated by Gilbert Canaan. Revolt 2, Part 7. It is all very fine to deny the world, but the world is not so easily denied by a young man's boasting. Christophe was sincere, but he was under illusion. He did not know himself. He was not a monk. He had not the temperament for renouncing the world, and besides, he was not old enough to do so. At first he did not suffer much. He was plunged in composition, and while his work lasted, he did not feel the want of anything. But when he came to the period of depression which follows the completion of a work, and lasts until a new work takes possession of the mind, he looked about him and was horrified by his loneliness. He asked himself why he wrote. While a man is writing, he never asks himself that question. He must write. There is no arguing about it. And then he finds himself with the work that he has begotten. The great instinct which caused it to spring forth is silent. He does not understand why it was born. He hardly recognizes it. It is almost a stranger to him. He longs to forget it. And that is impossible as long as it is not published or played or living its own life in the world. Till then it is like a newborn child attached to its mother, a living thing bound fast to his living flesh. It must be amputated at all costs or it will not live. The more Christophe composed, the more he suffered under the weight of these creatures who had sprung forth from himself and could neither live nor die. He was haunted by them. Who could deliver him from them? Some obscure impulse would stir in these children of his thoughts. They longed desperately to break away from him, to expand into other souls like the quick and fruitful seed which the wind scatters over the universe. Must he remain imprisoned in his sterility? He raged against it. Since every outlet, theatres, concerts, was closed to him, and nothing would induce him to approach those managers who had once failed him, there was nothing left but for him to publish his writings. But he could not flatter himself that it would be easier to find a publisher to produce his work than an orchestra to play it. The two or three clumsy attempts that he had made were enough. Rather than expose himself to another rebuff, or to bargain with one of these music merchants and put up with his patronizing airs, he preferred to publish it at his own expense. It was an act of madness. He had some small savings out of his court salary and the proceeds of a few concerts, but the source from which the money had come was dried up, and it would be a long time before he could find another. And he should have been prudent enough to be careful with his scanty funds, which had to help him over the difficult period upon which he was entering. Not only did he not do so, but as his savings were not enough to cover the expenses of publication, he did not shrink from getting into debt. Louisa dared not say anything. She found him absolutely unreasonable, and did not understand how anybody could spend money for the sake of seeing his name on a book but since it was a way of making him be patient and of keeping him with her, she was only too happy for him to have that satisfaction. Instead of offering the public compositions of a familiar and undisturbing kind, in which it could feel at home, 
Christophe chose from among his manuscripts a suite very individual in character, which he valued highly. They were piano pieces mixed with leader, some very short and popular in style, others very elaborate and almost dramatic. The whole formed a series of impressions, joyous or mild, linked together naturally and written alternately for the piano and the voice, alone or accompanied. For, said Christophe, when I dream, I do not always formulate what I feel. I suffer, I am happy, and have no words to say. But then comes a moment when I must say what I am feeling, and I sing without thinking of what I am doing. Sometimes I sing only vague words, a few disconnected phrases, sometimes whole poems. Then I begin to dream again. And so the day goes by, and I have tried to give the impression of a day. Why these gathered impressions composed only of songs or preludes? There is nothing more false or less harmonious. One must try to give the free play of the soul. He had called his suite a day. The different parts of the composition bore subtitles, shortly indicating the succession of his inward dreams. Christophe had written mysterious dedications, initials, dates, which only he could understand, as they reminded him of poetic moments or beloved faces, the gay Corinne, the languishing Sabina, and the little unknown Frenchwoman. Besides this work, he selected thirty of his leader those which pleased him most, and consequently pleased the public least. He avoided choosing the most melodious of his melodies, but he did choose the most characteristic. The public always has a horror of anything characteristic. Characterless things are more likely to please them. These leader were written to poems of old Silesian poets of the seventeenth century that Christophe had read by chance in a popular collection, and whose loyalty he had loved. Two especially were dear to him, dear as brothers, two creatures full of genius, and both had died at thirty, the charming Paul Fleming, the traveler to the Caucasus and to Esfahan, who preserved his soul pure, loving, and serene in the midst of the savagery of war, the sorrows of life, and the corruption of his time, and Johann Christian Gunther, the unbalanced genius who wore himself out in debauchery and despair, casting his life to the four winds. He had translated Gunther's cries of provocation and vengeful irony against the hostile god who overwhelms his creatures, his furious curses like those of a titan overthrown, hurling the thunder back against the heavens, he had selected Fleming's love-songs to Anemone and Baselena, soft and sweet as flowers, and the rondo of the stars, the Tanzlied dancing-song of hearts glad and limpid, and the calm heroic sonnet to himself, Ansich, which Christophe used to recite as a prayer every morning. The smiling optimism of the pious Paul Gerhardt also had its charm for Christophe. It was a rest for him on recovering from his own sorrows, he loved that innocent vision of nature as God, the fresh meadows where the storks walk gravely among the tulips and white narcissus, by little brooks singing on the sands, the transparent air wherein there pass the wide-winged swallows and flying doves, 
the gaiety of a sunbeam piercing the rain, and the luminous sky smiling through the clouds, and the serene majesty of the evening, the sweet peace of the forests, the cattle, the bowers, and the fields. He had had the impertinence to set to music several of those mystic canticles which are still sung in Protestant communities, and he had avoided preserving the choral character. Far from it, he had a horror of it. He had given them a free and vivacious character. Old Gerhardt would have shuddered at the devilish pride which was breathed forth now in certain lines of his Song of the Christian Traveller, or the pagan delight which made this peaceful stream of his Song of Summer bubble over like a torrent. The collection was published without any regard for common sense, of course. The publisher whom Christoph paid for printing and storing his leader had no other claim to his choice than that of being his neighbor. He was not equipped for such important work. The printing went on for months. There were mistakes and expensive corrections. Christophe knew nothing about it, and the whole thing cost more by a third than it need have done. The expenses far exceeded anything he had anticipated. Then, when it was done, Christophe found an enormous addition on his hands, and did not know what to do with it. The publisher had no customers. He took no steps to circulate the work, and his apathy was quite in accord with Christophe's attitude. When he asked him, to satisfy his conscience, to write him a short advertisement of it, Christophe replied that he did not want any advertisement. If his music was good, it would speak for itself. The publisher religiously respected his wishes. He put the edition away in his warehouse. It was well kept, for in six months not a copy was sold. While he was waiting for the public to make up its mind, Christophe had to find some way of repairing the hole he had made in his means, and he could not be nice about it, for he had to live and pay his debts. Not only were his debts larger than he had imagined, but he saw that the monies on which he had counted were less than he had thought. Had he lost money without knowing it, or, what was infinitely more probable, had he reckoned up wrongly? He had never been able to add correctly. It did not matter much why the money was missing. It was missing without a doubt. Louisa had to give her all to help her son. He was bitterly remorseful and tried to pay her back, as soon as possible, and at all costs. He tried to get lessons, though it was painful to him to ask and to put up with refusals. He was out of favor altogether. He found it very difficult to obtain pupils again, and so when it was suggested that he should teach at a school he was only too glad. It was a semi-religious institution— the director, an astute gentleman, had seen, though he was no musician, how useful Christophe might be, and how cheaply in his present position. He was pleasant and paid very little. When Christophe ventured to make a timid remark, the director told him with a kindly smile that as he no longer held an official position, he could not very well expect more. It was a sad task. It was not so much a matter of teaching the pupils music— as of making their parents and themselves believe that they had learned it. The chief thing was to make them able to sing at the ceremonies to which the public were admitted. It did not matter how it was done. Christophe was in despair. He had not even the consolation of telling himself as he fulfilled his task that he was doing useful work. His conscience reproached him with it as hypocrisy. 
he tried to give the children more solid instruction and to make them acquainted with and love serious music, but they did not care for it a bit. Christoph could not succeed in making them listen to it. He had no authority over them. In truth, he was not made for teaching children. He took no interest in their floundering. He tried to explain to them all at once the theory of music. When he had to give a piano lesson, he would set his pupil a symphony of Beethoven, which he would play as a duet with her. Naturally, that could not succeed. He would explode angrily, drive the pupil from the piano, and go on playing alone for a long time. He was just the same with his private pupils outside the school. He had not an ounce of patience. For instance, he would tell a young lady who prided herself on her aristocratic appearance and position that she played like a kitchen-maid, or he would even write to her mother and say that he gave it up, that it would kill him if he went on long bothering about a girl so devoid of talent, all of which did not improve his position. His few pupils left him. He could not keep any of them more than a few months. His mother argued with him. He would argue with himself. Louisa made him promise that at least he would not break with the school he had joined, for if he lost that position, he did not know what he should do for a living. And so he restrained himself in spite of his disgust. He was most exemplarily punctual. But how could he conceal his thoughts when a donkey of a pupil blundered for the tenth time in some passages, or when he had to coach his class for the next concert in some foolish chorus? for he was not even allowed to choose his program. His taste was not trusted. He was not exactly zealous about it all. And yet he went stubbornly on, silent, frowning, only betraying his secret wrath by occasionally thumping on his desk and making his pupils jump in their seats. But sometimes the pill was too bitter. He could not bear it any longer. In the middle of the chorus he would interrupt the singers. Oh, stop, stop! I'll play you some Wagner instead. They asked nothing better. They played cards behind his back. There was always someone who reported the matter to the director, and Christophe would be reminded that he was not there to make his pupils like music, but to make them sing. He received his scoldings with a shudder, but he accepted them. He did not want to lose his work. Who would have thought a few years before, when his career looked so assured and brilliant, when he had done nothing, that he would be reduced to such humiliation, just as he was beginning to be worth something. Among the hurts to his vanity that he came by in his work at the school, one of the most painful was having to call on his colleagues. He paid two calls at random, and they bored him so that he had not the heart to go on. The two privileged persons were not at all pleased about it, but the others were personally affronted. They all regarded Christophe as their inferior in position and intelligence, and they assumed a patronizing manner towards him. Sometimes he was overwhelmed by it, for they seemed to be so sure of themselves and the opinion they had of him that he began to share it. He felt stupid with them. What could he have found to say to them? They were full of their profession and saw nothing beyond it. They were not men. If only they had been books— but they were only notes to books, philological commentaries. Christophe avoided meeting them, but sometimes he was forced to do so. The director was at home once a month in the afternoon, and he insisted on all his people being there. 
Christophe, who had cut the first afternoon without excuse, in the vain hope that his absence would not be noticed, was ever afterwards the object of sour attention. Next time he was lectured by his mother and decided to go. He was as solemn about it as though he were going to a funeral. He found himself at a gathering of the teachers of the school and other institutions of the town, and their wives and daughters. They were all huddled together in a room too small for them, and grouped hierarchically. They paid no attention to him. The group nearest him was talking of pedagogy and cooking. All the wives of the teachers had culinary recipes which they set out with pedantic exuberance and insistence. The men were no less interested in these matters, and hardly less competent. They were as proud of the domestic talents of their wives as they of their husbands' learning. Christophe stood by a window, leaning against the wall, not knowing how to look, now trying to smile stupidly, now gloomy with a fixed stare and unmoved features, and he was bored to death. A little away from him, sitting in the recess of the window, was a young woman to whom nobody was talking, and she was as bored as he. They both looked at the room and nodded at each other. It was only after some time that they noticed each other, just as they both turned away to yawn, both being at the limit of endurance. Just at that moment their eyes met. They exchanged a look of friendly understanding. He moved towards her. She said in a low voice, "'Are you amused?' He turned his back on the room, and looking out of the window, put out his tongue. She burst out laughing, and suddenly waking up, she signed to him to sit down by her side. They introduced themselves. She was the wife of Professor Reinhardt, who lectured on natural history at the school, and was newly come to the town, where they knew nobody. She was not beautiful, she had a large nose, ugly teeth, and she lacked freshness. But she had keen, clever eyes and a kindly smile. She chattered like a magpie. He answered her solemnly. She had an amusing frankness and a droll wit. They laughingly exchanged impressions out loud without bothering about the people around them. Their neighbors, who had not deigned to notice their existence, when it would have been charitable to help them out of their loneliness, now threw angry looks at them. It was in bad taste to be so much amused. But they did not care what the others might think of them. They were taking their revenge in their chatter. In the end, Frau Reinhardt introduced her husband to Christoph. He was extremely ugly. He had a pale, greasy, pockmarked, rather sinister face. But he looked very kind. He spoke low down in his throat and pronounced his words sententiously, stammeringly, pausing between each syllable. They had been married a few months only, and these two plain people were in love with each other. They had an affectionate way of looking at each other, talking to each other, taking each other's hands in the presence of everybody, which was comic and touching. If one wanted anything, the other would want it too. And so they invited Christophe to go and sup with them after the reception. Christophe began jokingly to beg to be excused. He said that the best thing to do that evening would be to go to bed. He was quite worn out with boredom, as tired as though he had walked ten miles. But Frau Reinhardt said that he could not be left in that condition. It would be dangerous to spend the night with such gloomy thoughts. Christophe let them drag him off. In his loneliness he was glad to have met these good people, who were not very distinguished in their manners, but were simple and gemutlich. End of section 51